Let's open our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 12. Before we get into that, I saw Miss Tiffany walk in and I thought, oh, she's going to talk today, but nobody told me. So it makes me look bad, and that's the worst thing in the world, right? But I wanted to tell you about why I thought that, because there are some changes that are coming to the 107 Lincoln property. Okay, we call it the Better Business Bureau building, but that is going to be used for an expansion of the conservatory ministry. Okay, we're going to expand that into visual arts, uh, performing arts, uh, dance, and it's really an outgrowth of what has been going on at the conservatory. Uh, and so we are going to redo the interior a little bit uh, and move into those types of areas as an expansion. We'll continue to do what we do at the conservatory. And Ms. Tiffany, uh, sorry to embarrass you, but she's been doing so well okay, over there that it's just the natural next step. So you'll be seeing work over there in the next month or two uh, going on at the 107 property. Uh, just to add to that, you'll also see us, if you haven't known, we'll be moving the house in the backyard, uh, that little house that's is situated this way. We're going to move it back into the corner and open up the backyard and give us more space. Okay, so over the course of the next uh, months and years, you'll see us redo the backyard as funds are available for that. So the first step is to move the house out of the way. Um, so all those things are going to be happening this summer. So just be ready for that, okay? Good. All right. Romans chapter 12. If you're able, would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon us and give us understanding. Enlighten us as to what your word says, that they would be more than just words on the page but they would come and dwell within our hearts and change our very lives, Lord, that the word of Christ would dwell within us richly. We ask this in his name. Amen. So Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now I know it's April, the middle of April 19th. I think this is the 19th. Um, but we're starting our summer series. Okay, and you think, well, it's pretty early, Ryan. But it's an important summer series. And the summer series will be on the fruit of the Spirit. Now you think, well, why are we in Romans if we're going to start studying about the fruit of the Spirit? Well, we're going to study the fruit of the Spirit, and there are nine portions of the fruit of the Spirit, in the context of how we apply them in our society, and how the Lord calls us to live these things out. So we want to make sure that we don't just go, oh yes, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, and those things, but, but what does it mean to love in this society? What does it mean to really be peaceful in this society. And the worst one, or I guess the worst two, what does it mean to be patient and self-controlled in this society, okay? And, and we're going to do that by taking some of uh, what, what a, a, an ethicist wrote a while back. His name was Niebuhr, and he kind of put the culture and society in, in, in different phases. Uh, how should the church live relative to culture? Now, there's Christ against culture. Well, we should just hit culture and pound it into the dust, 
right? Because the, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Well, there's the view that we should get in and work within culture to change the culture and to make it and to bring the gospel into the culture. So there are, there are views there. Not that we're going to look deeply into him, but we're going to kind of use that model to see how should the church interact with the culture around us and using the fruit of the Spirit as our model. So naturally, we turn to Romans and Romans 12. Now, so, so let, me, let me begin with this question for you. If you were Satan, what would you do to destroy America? What would you do to destroy America? Well, here's one person's view of this, and I'm just going to read it uh, verbatim. So, I'd subvert the churches first. I would begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a servant, I would whisper, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper, the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of God creating man. I would convince them that what is bad is good and what is good and bad. And to the old, I would teach them to pray in this way. Our Father, which art in Washington, hallowed be thy name. I'd educate authors on how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I would slowly change television shows into pulpits of sex and violence. I'd peddle narcotics to whomever I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I would tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd convince everyone that families don't have to have two parents. Churches should be places where you feel good no matter what, and that nations should give up their distinction, their distinctives and their sovereignty. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to redefine what it means to be intellectual. They would neglect discipline and encourage the children to let their emotions run their lives. And before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse and then the schoolhouse and then from the Congresses. Then in churches, I would substitute psychology for religion. I would lure priests and pastors into thinking that they should serve only for the money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbols of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a fat man. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who want until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. What do you bet I could get whole states to promote gambling as a way to get rich? I would convince people of the uselessness of hard work, the uselessness of patriotism, and the uselessness of moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that living together is better and more fun, and thus I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd keep on doing exactly what I have been doing. This is Paul Harvey. Good day. 1965, he wrote those words. 1965. So over the subsequent 50 years, how many of Paul Harvey's speculations have come true? Oh, yeah. Churches where the Bible is considered a myth. Within society at large, it appears that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Pornography addiction runs rampant. Marriage is regarded as a civil construct devoid of any sanctity. It's devilish. 
Good and bad, as originally defined by God, have been functionally redefined to mean just the opposite. Those who stood for thousands of years on one position are now viewed as bigoted and shallow and ignorant because they hold that position that societies across the globe have held for thousands of years. Now, in the last couple of years, we just redefine them and, and get on board with the redefine. Come on. The Bible is no longer the final authority for the faith and day-to-day decisions of most Americans. Sure, the majority still believe in God and believe in heaven, but a very low percentage apply those in their day-to-day lives. Historic mainline churches lead the way in replacing the God of the Bible with the individual's personal conscience. That's the test for right and wrong. Media has become mesmerizing as we are, what, entertaining ourselves to death. Metal detectors in every school, except homeschools. Okay. God ejected from the courthouse. God ejected from the schoolhouse. God ejected from Congress. Now, to whom does an atheist pray, and what does an atheist invoke when they start the city council meeting? I've always wondered that. Okay. Psychology replacing religion, yeah. Pastors and priests living secular lives, yeah. Lotteries, mm, yeah, it's come around. Hardworking patriots, those of traditional moral conduct, are suspect, are taxed, penalized for their success. Traditional marriage is considered old-fashioned, bigoted. Sex outside of marriage is now the norm, all kinds considered normal. Why were the results of the American Revolution so positive and the results of the French Revolution ended up in a frenzy of guillotining. The French Revolution was purely secular and sought equality. The American Revolution was driven by faith and sought liberty and freedom under law. Now, I didn't come up with all this, you know. I I, I took this from an article that I read this week, but it was perfect for what we are dealing with here. I suspect today that many of the founders of this nation would be called bigoted, intolerant, ignorant. After all, they did call sin, sin. They were not afraid to distinguish truth from error. And their definition of moral truth came from this book here. Okay. Patrick Henry said, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians and on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, people of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. Now, you can go to other countries that were founded by other religions, and you can't find the same freedoms. You can't find those same things there. But you come to this country, and that is instilled within the very core of what we believe, the freedoms, freedoms to worship, freedom to understand what is right and wrong according to some unchangeable truths. Now, all that kind of lays the groundwork for us to what we're going to study today. And it is simply one portion of this passage. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Now, it is difficult to do this since our very nature is to conform. Unless it is acted upon, we will conform to the society around us. Unless we purposely and thoughtfully attempt not to conform, 
society will conform us into its image. Okay? Now, uh, we, we in this room never did this, but we, you know, I can remember uh, my friends who all dressed alike because they wanted to be individuals, so they dressed alike, okay? Or they, they you know, we, had, we grew our hair long. Why? Because my dad had short hair and I wanted to be an individual. It just happened to be that all my friends had long hair, okay? That's just the way it was. If we don't purposely attempt not to conform, we will conform. We will be shaped. We will be molded. The world and society will take us, and it'll make us look like everybody else. Most importantly, it'll make us have the same views as everybody else. Now, if you have any question about this, then I just refer you to the Old Testament, where Israel, the Israelites, had God as their king. I mean, they, they had it good. The Lord protected them. The Lord did miraculous things in their lives, uh, and, and he, he came down and made the covenant with them. And there they are. What do they say? They, say, they turn to Samuel and say, hey, Samuel, we want to be just like everybody else. We want a king too. And Samuel goes, you've got a king. He's God. And they go, no, no, all the other nations have a king who sits on a throne. You know, he's a guy, and I want to be, we all want to be like them. And so he goes to the Lord, and, and you can... I just, just imagine Samuel coming to the Lord. God, these people want a king. And, and the Lord says, give them one. Okay? And sometimes there's a danger that you might get what you pray for. Okay? And that was the danger. That was terrible things for them. They wanted to be just like the nations around them. Uh, and so, so what happened to them? Well, they began to look like the nations around them. They began to offer their children on the fires of Moloch and fires of Baal. That means they began to sacrifice their firstborn in the fire. And, and, and there's images of this where the, the, the statue would sit like this with their arms out, and they would bring their children, and there's a fire underneath here, and put their children on the fire because that's what every other nation around them did. They ceased to have a worldview that was taken from and based solely upon the teachings of God who had called them, who had cared for them, who had made a covenant with them to protect them and to watch over them. Now, in our society, everybody has a worldview. Okay, now we as believers might think we have a Christian worldview, but odds are we just have a Christianized worldview because it is very difficult to have a full-blown Christian worldview in this society. Now, in a Christianized worldview would, would be accepting of a lot of things within the world, but then Christianizing them to some degree so that we can get along with the world, so that we can still function in the world and still enjoy enough of the things within the world that if we had a full-blown Christian view, Christian worldview, we would not want to involve ourselves in those things. To have a Christian worldview, you must see everything through the life and the lens of Christ and Scripture. Everything. You must base your decisions upon what Scripture says first. Don't base your decisions upon what works within the world and then come back to Scripture and try to live them out that way. It's almost as like if you have to hold the word up and look through this at the rest of society and make your decisions in that fashion. Now, in Romans chapter 12 here, Paul is giving us a, a declaration of the first principles of Christian living. The first principles of Christian living, and they are two. Don't be conformed, 
be transformed. This is how we live the Christian life. You don't conform, you be transformed. And Paul is making this great theological statement here because Christian life for Paul is theology. It's taking the theological truths and living them out each and every day in everything that you do. If you don't understand the truth of grace, you won't be able to live the life of grace. And the life of grace is founded where? In the truth of God's word. Back in Romans chapter 5, Paul says that grace reigns in righteousness and that one of the goals of grace is to produce holiness and righteousness in all who belong to Christ. All whose lives have been transformed by his grace and his mercy. So this morning, we're just going to look at the first of the, first of the two first principles. Do not be conformed. Next week, it will be the command to be transformed. Now, we cannot live Christian lives, and we cannot have a Christian worldview if we don't understand these two commands. And they are commands. They're not options. It's not as if the Lord is up there going, well, I'd like you not to conform to the world to the best of your ability. It is straightforward enough. Do not be conformed to the world. Be transformed. Okay? I'd like you. He'd probably use better, better grammar. Uh, I would like for you to think more on the things of the word. I would like for you to be study this whenever you get the chance. I would like for you to apply it as much as possible. That's not what he says. Okay? That's like it's an option. You know, he says, be transformed. Do not be conformed. Plain and simple and straightforward for us. Now, first, and as we go through uh, this, because we're, we're going to work on do not be conformed, I just want to touch on the first things. The first thing, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. We'll make it nice and simple. The basic, the basis of Christian, Christian holiness, the mercies of God. Okay? That is what. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He enables us. All these things rest on the mercies of God. And Paul says, in light of God's grace, in light of God's mercy, offer your body a living sacrifice. God gives us new life, and what does he expect out of us? That we would live the new life. He says, I've given it to you, now put it to use. Put it to use. Secondly, he says, I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice that is acceptable to God. The sacrifice involves the entirety of our lives. Our whole life, every part of our life, every part of our day, every moment. Now, the people who Paul was writing to, they had a Jewish background, and they would understand what he meant by a sacrifice, because they would take a sacrifice, they would put it on the altar, and that entire sacrifice would be consumed. And, and this is kind of strange for them. So now they're, scraping their, they're, they're scratching their head going, what do you mean a living sacrifice? Paul says, I want you to get up on the altar before God and give your life as a sacrifice to God, but the only thing that dies in this is what? It's the old self. The old self is dead. The new self is here. And Paul does, this is why, you know, you read all of Paul and you understand this. There's the old self, it's like the old clothes. You take off the old clothes, you put on the new clothes of Christ. The old self is dead. The new self is here. The old things are gone. The new things are here. I'm no longer bound by the chains of sin that held me. I am now bound to the Lord, Jesus Christ. He says, those things die. 
those old things. Now each and every day you are to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, every moment of every day, all that you are. I'm going to quote John Calvin here. We did this a couple weeks ago, but it was so good I have to do it again. He says, we are not our own. Therefore, let not our reason nor our will sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we belong to God. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We belong to God. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule our actions. We belong to God. Let all the parts of our lives accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. I don't belong to me. I belong to God. I cannot conform to this world because I belong to somebody else. And my whole purpose should be to conform to him. Now, most Christians never come to a full understanding of this concept. We like to flirt with the world. We like enough of the world to enjoy those things that the world has to offer. Maybe those things that that we used to be involved with before we became a a believer. And we don't think they're that bad, but we just like to, to hang on to a couple of them. Maybe it's our own personal indulgences, our own personal desires. We, maybe we become victims of a, a philosophy, a, a victim of a, a psychology of the world around us. We like to think along the lines the world thinks because it's easier to get along that way. It's easier to be successful. So we never come to a place of total commitment, of offering all that we are to our, of ourselves to the Lord. Therefore, we forfeit so much of what the Lord has for us. We forfeit the blessings that are here. We forfeit some of those things that the Lord has for us because we never commit to him in total. Now, make sure we understand the use of this word. We are to offer our bodies not as a one-time offering, but they are to be offered up continually. You get up in the morning, do you say, good Lord, it's morning? Or do you say, good morning, Lord? Now, plenty of times I, I get up and I, I don't know who I am, you know, or I say, oh, it's morning, and, and why does the dog have to go out so early, you know, something like that. Or do, are we excited about what the Lord has for us? Are we excited to be his and to offer ourselves to him and to say, Lord, this day is yours. Everything about it is going to be yours. I don't know what you have for me, but it is to your glory. We are to offer ourselves all the time continually to the Lord. Nothing are we to hold back. Lord, I'm going to give you everything today, except I've got carved out for me an hour and a half where I don't want you to see what I'm going to do. Because I'm not going to be really, I'm going to be a little conformed to the world over here. And I, you know, I don't want you, I don't want you to be part of that, Lord. Oh, no, no, no. All the time, all day. Maybe we're willing to serve the Lord, but if it doesn't demand too much out of us, doesn't demand too much out of us emotionally, I mean, we were talking in Sunday school today that, that if you want to love, you've got to get your hands dirty to love. You've got to get down in people's lives, and that gets complicated, and that gets kind of messy, but that's the way we are called to live and to care for one another. But the world is not that interested in, in that. But we can't be conformed to the world. All right, back to this. 
do not be conformed to the world. Paul is talking about a life that is supposed to be debate supposed to be based on divine norms, not on the norms of society, not on what is expedient to get along with society or what society says is right or wrong, but on divine norms. You're not to be dominated by the cultural uh, mores of, of our society. If you're a believer, God must be foremost in your heart, in your mind, and in your actions. Now, this is particularly difficult for those that we might call Nominal believers, okay. those whose knowledge of God's word is thin, those whose uh, you know participation in most times are only you know I I say that I'm a believer, uh, I have uh, confessed faith in Jesus Christ, but my growth in maturity stopped at third grade Sunday school. Okay, that makes it very difficult. Okay, to understand. Because you will be conformed to the world unless you work to not be conformed to the world. And as a believer, the more that you have inside of you, the more of his word, the more of time with fellowship with the body, the more you have inside of you to resist the world's pressure to conform. There's Martin Luther. He stands before his accusers at the Diet of Worms, and what does he say? He says, my conscience is captive to what? To the societal norms around me. No, he doesn't say that. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. Okay, they were pressuring him to go along and to be like them. And he said, I can't do that because what? The word of God is my norm. So our minds cannot be conformed to the things of this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Now, most of the time in Scripture, the word world is cosmos. Okay, and we understand that word. That's kind of common within our language. But that's not the word that is used here. The word that is used here means age. Do not be conformed to this age. Paul is worried about... um, not conforming ourselves, when he says age, it's, 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 the, it's the attitudes, it's the mindset, it's the actions that go on in this present age. Richard Trench, who was a pastor in Ireland back in the 1800s, defined age in this way. I think it's the best way. Age is the floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations at any time current in the world. The world says this is important. Do you buy into it? Is that, what important, is that what is important in your world? The world says we should hope and strive for this. Is that what you hope and strive for? See, it, it, that's the age, and, and it wants us to conform to that age. And who is the leader of this present age? Satan, the prince and the ruler. How do these things come upon us? Well, they come upon us through music, through movies, through media, through the internet, through our interactions with people, through people who have strong beliefs that what they think and what they hold to are correct, and we are seen as believers not conforming to the world as the outsiders. We're ignorant, we're bigoted, we're narrow, we're all those things. And unless we purposely fight against it, we'll give in, because it's easier to give in and to be conformed. It's very difficult not to conform. 
We're called to not allow ourselves to be conformed to the purposes and ethics and standards and moralities of our time, which is led by Satan. Again, let's look at the word. Do not be conformed. Literally, it means stop allowing yourselves to follow the evil age. Stop allowing yourselves to follow the evil age. So the assumption from Paul's writing is that we already are following the evil age, or we already are being conformed to it. Now, the Greek term for conform, it's a long term, sunshimetizo. It's, an, it's a compound word, so it's an intensive. It, so it's, it's the, the intensity there, it's the word for scheme, okay, like a schema, like a, a plan. And it literally means stamped like metal or to be molded to the act of assuming an outward expression that does not come from within. Okay, we're going to look back at that word in just a moment. That does not come from within. To be stamped like metal. Okay? You go through the machine, if you've ever seen the, the, uh, uh, the, the line where those things are done, it comes through a big press and the press goes boom, and all of a sudden that imprint is stamped in that metal. That's what the word means here. If we don't fight against that pressure from society, we will look like society, we will be conformed to society. Okay, a lot of general things. How about a specific example of the dangers that we face? Okay. Now, I, I quoted from Paul Harvey earlier. I, I kind of like Paul Harvey. He's pretty good. Okay. I'm going to quote from Frank Brunei, who is a New York Times writer, an article that he recently wrote. This is how the world would like us to conform. Brunei writes, the debate over so-called religious freedom laws portray homosexuality and devout Christianity as forces in fierce collision. They are not, at least not in several prominent denominations which have come to a new understanding of what the Bible does and doesn't decree, of what people can and cannot divine according to God's will. Now, I just love, this is my interjection here, I just love it when people who don't believe or people who have no theological education or no understanding of the languages come, come and say, we've got a new understanding of what the Bible says and we need to get with it. Uh, that's like me saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to build a bridge over the Tennessee River. Okay? I'd like you all to buy into it. Okay, and we'll be the first ones to drive across it, right? Uh, well, Rand, what, what do you know about trigonometry or geometry or whatever it takes to design and build a bridge? Hey, I don't even balance a checkbook, okay? No, no, okay. That's the kind of thing that we have here. Sin and Christianity don't have to be in conflict in any church anywhere. This is what he writes. That many Christians regard them as incompatible is understandable and represents not so much a hatred of others, but of beliefs that have ossified over centuries. But in the end, their view of sin is a decision they make. It's a choice. You understand what he says? It is a choice left to the Christians whether we are going to define sin as sin or whether we are just going to say, no, that's not sin. The, question, the choice is up to us to define it as sin or not define it as sin. Defining sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman as sin prioritizes, this is him again, scattered passages of ancient texts as if time had stood still, as if the advantages of science and knowledge meant nothing. 
It disregards the degree to which all writings reflect the biases and blind spots of their authors, cultures, and eras. It ignores the extent to which interpretation is subjective. It is debatable. And it elevates unthinking, he used the word I didn't even, I had to look it up, unthinking deference, I won't even say the word he used, above intelligent observation, above the evidence in front of you, because to look honestly at those who engage in sexual behavior outside of marriage, as scripture defines marriage, is to see that those who pursue sinful acts in an unrepentant, habitual, and purposeful way, I've added that, are the same, same magnificent riddles as everyone else. No more or less flawed, no more or less dignified. So our debate about religious freedom should include a conversation, and here it comes, about freeing religions and religious people from prejudices that they need not cling to and can indeed jettison, much as they have jettisoned other aspects of their faith's history, rightly bowing to the enlightenments of modernity. Oh, the God of modernity, okay? It knows best, okay? Whatever is happening today, they know best. And it is left to us believers to ditch that ossified stuff that we have been clinging to for the last 2,000 years and to get it in gear and to do what? Conform with the rest of society. That's what he says. He says it's our fault. We're clinging to this old stuff about what's sin and what is not sin. And if we would just pitch that out and not define it as sin, we could get along with everybody. And he goes on to quote a bunch of, and I put these in quotes, evangelical scholars, because I didn't know any of them. And when I looked them up, they didn't have any theological weight behind them. So he quotes these scholars who do, or if they did, I read their stuff, poor, such poor exegesis. Man, he does not quote the guy who is the expert and really the final authority in scholarly and theological areas of this, Dr. Robert Gagnon, who's wrote a book about this thick on this subject, and nobody ever quotes him because they can't argue with his points. Mr. Bernay is pro-choice, meaning it's not a choice about whether or not people want to involve themselves in sin. They will, because it's who they are. The choice is left to us as believers. Are we going to call that sin? Or are we going to conform to society that says it's no longer sin? The act of assuming an outward expression that does not come from within. Paul says, don't masquerade. Don't pretend as if you belong to the world. You don't belong to the world. He says, you don't. You belong to Christ. You've been bought, what? With a price. And that price was the sinless blood of Christ. You belong to him. Don't allow yourself to be continually patterned after the world and the spirit of this age, which is not connected to you on the inside. Okay? The Holy Spirit comes and dwells and fills us. And we say we cannot be connected to the things of the world. Do we have to live in the world? You bet we have to live in the world. Do we have to function in the world? We have to function in the world. Do we have to be conformed with the world? No. And that's the command. Do not be conformed to the world. They say, okay, Randy, I'm ready. Well, how can I not be conformed? How can I be transformed? Next week. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, here's your command. Do not be conformed to this world. 
There are distinctives to being a believer. There are distinctives that come from your word, and we know that when we follow those, when we fill our minds and our hearts with those, there is a peace and a joy that this world does not understand. We might not get along all that well with the world when we resist conforming to it. We might have to take stands that are very unpleasant, that cost us friendships, that cost us personally, that may cost us materially, but, but we cannot conform to the world. Our priorities must be different. Our priorities must be the things of Christ. For when we do that, when we glorify you, we fulfill the purposes for which we were created. Your glory and your purposes. For you are sovereign over all things. And if it takes sacrifice from us to not conform to this world, we know that there is greater blessing in you than is found in the world. Lord, we each have to go out and apply this. There's one thing to look at it and talk about it here within these confines, but we each have to go out and live it. We have to make ethical decisions each and every day. Our behavior has to reflect the things of Christ in a world that doesn't like the things of Christ or will tell us that, that the conflict in the world, the conflict over these ethical issues is really our fault. Because we're clinging to something that is old and outdated and we will not bow down to the God of modernity. Because there is only one God and that is you. And you have called us and you have saved us and you have transformed us. Lord, might we live without fear in this world and without conforming to it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.